Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. People. It's time again. Richard Grove is starting Season 8 of his Autonomy course, and as a graduate of Season 1, I can tell you that I doubt I could have gotten through the last 27 or 28 months without Richard's guidance, leadership, and friendship. So head on over to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash autonomy to get more information. I have a couple links there, a link to a video telling you about the course and a link to a 19 skills for life PDF that is free to download. Let's all get on Richard's level. Thank you. I want to tell you about the Mises Mayor's Pack, formerly known as Mises GOP. They're raising money to support Buck Johnson of the Counterflow podcast for City Council. Buck is one of the best leaders our community has. We saw in 2020 what happens when weak leaders are in charge and how having just one good guy in office can save many lives. Mises Mayors works to put good Misesian men in office who will fight back against a great reset and will push local policies such as contractually obligating cops to protect the citizens and passing town charter amendments stating that the government gets its legitimacy from property owners. I personally give to Mises Mayors every month because I truly believe this pack has the right strategy, the strategy created by HAPA, and I'm asking my listeners to support them by going to MisesGOP.org forward slash Pete and pledging a few dollars per month to support electing right-wingers like Buck. All money raised will go towards electing officials. Not one cent will go to PAC leadership, and that policy will never change. By joining me and going to MisesGOP.org forward slash Pete, and pulling thousands of small monthly donations, we can do what must be done and elect liberty-minded men like Buck who will get liberty right. Part three with Aaron. What's going on, Aaron? How you doing, man? How's it going, man? Oh, you know. Another, I've been excited another, for this one. <laughs> another day, another possibility that my... um that my channel will get taken down. So, um, you know, we'll see. Hey, I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you hate money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me, um, let me see if I got this right. All right, man. I'm, (sighs) let's see if I can, um, you know, let's see, see how long this channel is going to be up. And, uh, (laughs) I'm I'm actually going to try to self-censor. All right. (laughs) Okay. I don't actually okay. want you to lose money, but it, I'm I'm saying it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, this is yeah. If you watch the first two, especially some of the things that Jose was saying, but Jose was just being so perfect with it. Um, you know, using um, he actually used Uncle um, um, what's his name's um, Uncle Jared over at American Renaissance a couple of his uh, his his phrases for the um, yeah, the, what we're talking about here. <laughs> all right ready oh i'm stop ready me. stop me anytime mm-hmm. race war in high school the 10-year destruction of franklin k lane yada yada chapter two prelude by the time calendar by the time calendar year 1970 began the racial polarization at franklin k lane high school was total white students had been beaten and terrorized to a degree never before known in new york's long history of public education And while the theoreticians and social scientists were lightly dismissing the violence, apologizing for it as if the only mode of self-expression available to the blacks who had been miseducated by the system, the seeds for a new generation of racism were being sown. But members of this new generation would have substance enforcing their bigotry. 
quite different from the know-nothing prejudices of their elders. For these whites had been on the receiving end of a wave of terror that matched matched anything thrown by Southern whites at black people in the post-1954 era. Um, <laughs> let me stop you there. So uh, where I grew up in, in Massachusetts, I have a lot of family that went to school in, in the Boston public school system. And uh, during busing and, uh, you know, the suburbs, during busing and uh, all of the stories that I got, I mean, you did hear about fights. You did hear about, like, throwing rocks at school buses. Um, but, like, it all boils down to it was just one annoyance. Um, I haven't heard anything like this happening, at least at least from the from the boomers I talk to. Um, it's but yeah, I'm so yeah, Boston Boston has a long history of like <laughs> entrenched racism, maybe justified, maybe not. But um <laughs> yeah, this is I, I, I gotta ask next time I talk to these people, I'm gonna ask them like try to try to get into it a little more with them. Yeah. Because of because of this series. Yeah. <laughs> Little eye opening, especially considering, I mean, what 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 is it? A six hour drive south? Yeah. You know, it's not oh, that yeah. far. So all right. The whites blame Celeb. He is the principal of Franklin K Line. The whites blame Celeb most of all, but they were also critical of the police who they felt had been too soft on the criminal elements operating within the school. The, G- the degeneration continued in spite of the fact that by year's end, there were still seven policemen on patrol within the building. The white parents complained about their children coming home with marks on their bodies from beatings at the hand of black- hands of black youths and of extortions and of futile attempts to resist. They were convinced the celeb had sold out to the blacks. They cited charges made by their children about a different standard of school behavior for blacks and whites, with whites alone penalized for certain infractions. Huh. How does where have I heard this before? Well, you know, it's it's due to systemic racism and and social and innate social causes. And yeah, nothing's changed. It's something. It's something. All right. Uh, where the hell was it? <laughs> Time is a wheel. <laughs> yeah. It galled them that many blacks refused to rise for the morning Pledge of Allegiance exercise. And they felt that the blacks were given preferential treatment, pointing to the large number of college scholarships suddenly open to all, but which they felt were awarded to blacks in disproportionate numbers. <laughs> it seems it's uh, the, those two issues seem really odd to to make a point to focus on <laughs> not only are they stabbing me right now but they didn't stand for the pledge man <laughs> oh man my camera is like going crazy here all right uh, bah, 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 bah. the <laughs> white parents had reached <laughs> the white parents had reached the conclusion that it was the policy of the school to reward violence and bigotry with college scholarships and many couldn't believe the depths to which the school had sunk as police patrols stood guard as if the clientele were inmates in a penitentiary rather than students in an American public school. Whatever glimmer of hope existed for an integrated society was, as far as these whites were concerned, extinguished. And they could say without the slightest hesitation, as did one harried mother, quote, I'm sick of it. Sick of knowing my son has to endure two more years of hell in Lane. That's why I'm taking him out of here and enrolling him in a private school. I can't afford it, but I talked it over with my husband and we'll borrow the money. It'll be worth it just for once to see him smile when he leaves the house for school. He learned one thing at this school that isn't listed on the program. Franklin K. Lane has given him a good lesson in hatred. All right. So nowadays that's becoming less and less of an option. Um, A, borrowing money right now when interest rates are, you know, sky high again. Um, And B, the fact that even private schools now are uh, starting to get inundated with, uh, you know, critical theory, social justice, uh, gender ideology. Um, You're... 
I guess if your public school is bad enough, um, which it may very well be because we don't hear about it. This is why we're reading this book in 2022. But, um, you know, that's public, the public schools. Ugh, fleeing to a public school is only going to be less and less of a viable option um, in terms of experience and uh, affordability. I mean, at least now you have the opportunity, you can homeschool if you yep. want to. You know, back then that was, I think I heard the first instance, I knew somebody who actually had their child taken away for homeschooling in 1984. And what what state was that in? New York. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was going to say, because uh, I know that every every electoral race, whether it's state, local, or or national even uh, there's always there's always these uh jabs at, at homeschooling trying trying to control homeschooling trying to dissuade people from doing it via policy and uh i think as as we as we go through you're going to see this polarization between the states uh blue states will obviously clamp down on homeschooling make it a lot harder if not if not impossible and red states i think will just keep their status quo yep the white students themselves freely complained about the breakdown in discipline. They watched outsiders roam the halls and were bitter about Celeb giving into the demands of black militants. Why do I want to ring a bell every time I read the name Celeb? It's just, I just want to hear a ding. But, <laughs> maybe I can get maybe I can get my friend Ryan to come on and read some of this with me. They felt they had been sacrificed. That celebrated the bell of capitulation. <laughs> <laughs> they felt they had been sacrificed. That celeb had completely capitulated to the blacks, and that as white students they were considered intruders by the school's black majority. They charged yeah. the cel yeah, right. That's that's and the whole point of black militancy is that this is our this is our territory. This is our institution now. Now you are the colonizers. Yeah. Oh, they they charged that Celeb had followed a policy of appeasement, of constantly giving in, and of playing politics with their education. Jeez, now they're making him sound like a conservative. Yeah. And <laughs> and while the school bureaucrats were telling the public that Lane was simply a microcosm of society, um, holy crap. Think about think about that set. Think about that half sentence for a second. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what an in, what an indictment of society. <laughs> <laughs> and while the school bureaucrats were telling the public that Lane was simply a microcosm of society and that was and that what was happening there was only a reflection of events in the nation at large, a 15-year-old white girl, one of the assault victims, was saying, quote, I consider myself a liberal person, and I always took an active part in civil rights, but not anymore. I've seen too much. When the riot broke out in the cafeteria and the bomb went off last Wednesday, my girlfriend and I headed for the doors. Five black girls grabbed me and held me while another one punched me in the stomach. My girlfriend started to run and a black girl grabbed her and tried to rip her blouse off. I kept screaming, why, why? But they started acting like animals, just beating up any white girl they saw. I started to cry. I wanted to run home and never come back to this place again. Wow. Nah, it sucks. It sucks when the revolution starts to affect things that you like. <laughs> <laughs> That fifteen-year-old girl was J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Gonna... All right, guys. I think we've I think we've gotten a little too. I'm all for civil rights, but this is a little too much. <laughs> I mean, literally, what we are talking about here, if you're going to invoke J.K. Rowling, is turf wars. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> oh man! All right. I have to give I have to give Gerard Casey credit for that turf wars line. <laughs> I heard him on Tom Woods and he was talking about it and I was like, oh, that's just so perfect. All right. <laughs> While conditions reached a frightening climax in 1969, a year of unprecedented racial turmoil at Lane, 
the turn of events was not at all unexpected, nor can it be explained solely in terms of the newly awakened black consciousness that was sweeping the nation. For more than four years prior to the disaster of 1969, the Lane staff had been witness to repeated acts of violence committed by black youngsters. Teachers continually cried out against the growing lawlessness, but their pleas almost always fell on deaf ears. In 1966, teachers who dared speak out against the deterioration of school tone were labeled hysterical by the administration. As the school fell apart in the mid-60s, so did its faculty. Once a stable and tightly knit unit, the 1965-69 through 69 period saw some of the most competent and experienced teachers find their way out of lane. I wish there was an account of this whole thing written from the perspective of, like, militant black leadership yeah that would oh man that would be extremely interesting to see um just just them goading about how successful they were yeah because yeah i mean really this was a resounding success for for black activism i mean when did (laughs) when did white activism ever succeed like this uh, a couple of years there in the 30s <laughs> <sighs> those days <laughs> all right as discipline problems increased the deans obje- objected to their hands being tied by the administration which they believed had become overly guidance oriented with the elevation of mrs mary cone Ding, an, <laughs> an English instructor to an assistant principalship in guard in charge of guidance. Their major complaint was that they were being compelled to keep on the rolls the most violent, hardcore delinquents. Yeah, you can't expel them. That that's admitting failure. And then, you know, your your managerial job and your salary become at risk, and you can't have that. I mean, that's well. To be fair, uh, that that Salub guy is the perfect manager. The fact that he still has his job is a testament to how great of a manager he is. All he does, like throughout this reading, all he's doing is outsourcing responsibility, which is what a manager is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's that, that th- this whole thing is just other than a couple of the teachers, uh, which I know we don't really like teachers nowadays, but. The teachers here are really the ones like they have they have no one to outsource to. All they can do is keep pleading with the managers. It's it's insane. Hmm. <laughs> All right, let me keep reading. <laughs> Their major complaint was that they were being held. They're being c- compelled to keep on the roles of most violent, hardcore delinquents. There were a series of clashes between Cohen and various deans. She stayed. They left. Four different deans transferred out of the school over a three-year span, a loss of top-caliber personnel which who could not easily be replaced. The 1965-68 through 68 period was the prelude. Those who saw the handwriting on the wall and had enough seniority transferred out. Those in the middle found themselves locked in. And the... Yeah. <laughs> And the middle of the road leads to oh you're so <laughs> close to tenure it's just it's just one punch in the face it's just getting lit on fire <laughs> you're so close to tenure just just take it <laughs> and the new young teachers bursting with energy and enthusiasm after graduating from college ran to greener pastures where they could teach rather than play policemen which is which is funny i, I don't know if it was the case back then but nowadays uh most teachers fresh out of college get sent straight to inner city schools oh yeah oh 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean i went to an inner city school from k through eight mm-hmm. and yeah none of those teachers lived in the neighborhood yeah <laughs> let's just say none of them lived in the neighborhood and most of yeah. them had an hour drive into the bronx yeah and the uh, ink on their degree was still drying yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a trial by fire thing <laughs> <laughs> and the older ones that the older ones that stayed there that were there were there because of some kind of seniority tenure that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Those who stayed hoped against hope that the downward spiral would by some miracle be reversed. <laughs> it's like thinking that like the 
I mean, the only way to reverse this is to blow it up. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like government now. People who think, oh, you know, we can just turn around and you know, the, the 202 area code. We can, you know, it's got to be blown up. <laughs> somebody, the only way somebody, out is through. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The Chronicle of That Prelude is a story of educational politics, of administrative ineptitude, and of growing teacher militancy as a reaction to increasing student violence. Oh, I like the sound of that. All right. In 1962, Lane was not very much different from most of the other 59 academic high schools in the New York metropolitan area, except for the fact that it had been an integrated student body, 28.7% black, long before integration became a public issue. Harry Eisner, Lane's principal from 1948 to 1962, was a strong believer in the concept of integration, and even though all all was not peaceful on the racial scene during the 1950s, the faculty maintained this deep-rooted belief in integrated education eisner oh, that's I, uh, irish yeah. that's, that's irish right yeah yep maybe german uh, okay sure all right eisner had been a magnificent administrator and was respect, respected by students and teachers blacks and whites during his tenure even those youngsters who were not college bound received an education which was in many ways superior to what the average academic student was getting at lane in 1969 <laughs> As the board's program of reverse segregation took form in the early 1960s, due largely to segregated housing patterns, the deterioration of Franklin K. Lane was set in motion. Harry Eisner retired from the public school system in 1962, and after his highly competent assistant, Jacob Peshkin, that's, um, I think that, that's Spanish, right? Um, something like that. <laughs> okay. Served as caretaker for six months. James J. O'Connell. That's a ah, Jewish name. That's right. the, there's the Jew. <laughs> okay. Named him. <laughs> James J. O'Connell was appointed to the principalship in February 1963. Yeah, he, went, he, he went from <laughs> Jew to fucking Mick. <laughs> O'Connell had started out in the school system in 1930 as a teacher of English, advanced to a departmental chairmanship in 1952, and became an elementary school principal six years later. In 1962, he passed his third promotional examination in 10 years, and it was elevated to high school principalship. I wonder if that Peshkin guy was just, I, I wonder the amount of relief he felt that he was passed over for that promotion. Yeah. <laughs> 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 He was assigned to Lane at a time when the 110 Livingston, 110 Livingston Street bureaucracy was pondering the fate of the school. It was decided that Lane would be the safety valve for Brooklyn, the place to send the bulk of black students coming out of the junior high schools in the central Brooklyn ghetto. It was just decided like I, I that that should be a chapter in the book, how that was decided. I'd love to know the players. Yeah, <laughs> I have an idea. Um <laughs> They would be crammed into Lane more and more every year, youngsters with long records of convictions for felonious crimes, youngsters who were academically disoriented, well, there's a word, emotionally unstable, illiterate, socially maladjusted, and an increasing number hooked on hard drugs long before the city took cognizance of the spreading evil in its high schools. Hmm. Neither <laughs> neither O'Connell, the union, nor the local community had any say over the death blow that was dealt to Lane by these zoning policies in the early 1960s. This is uh, Brooklyn, right? Yes. Well, right. it's it, it's on the Brooklyn Queens line. Huh. So they're getting like that was if you remember from the first chapter, it was one of the arguments was even what police would yeah. handle it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love to know the players yeah oh come on we know often when o'connell tried to suspend the black youngster he found himself challenged by his superior district 19 superintendent margaret douglas douglas was the second highest ranking black administrator in the system and she wanted to know why most of the suspended youngsters were black friend enemy distinction that's why (laughs) (laughs) The relationship between O'Connell and Douglas was trying, to say the least. In 1967, when he had the opportunity to transfer to another school closer to his Long Island home, he grabbed the chance and said goodbye to Lane High School. He was a devoted schoolman, but he had been put down and overruled by his superiors at the district level and central headquarters. 
The 150 teachers who gathered in a local restaurant in June 1967 to wish him well felt a deep sense of loss and were truly saddened to hear him admit to his administration's failings. But those closest to him knew that as a non-tenured principal, his arm had been twisted many times, first by Dorothy Bonowit, the Queen's High School superintendent, and later by Margaret Douglas. When the high schools were placed under the jurisdiction of local school boards, major decisions affecting the school were made at the top, often without his knowledge or consent, and sometimes over his explicit objections. That's, yeah. For for those of you listening that are, you know, starting to graduate from, you know, your, your rank and file worker job to a management position, that's the experience you'll get as a newer manager, is that... Yeah, you have your responsibilities, but you're not involved in the decision-making process nearly as much as you'd like to be or need to be. Yeah. Just a just a personal complaint. <laughs> as yeah, as somebody who has been in management, um yeah. Um, Those first few years tough. Uh, oh god. Dar um had a footnote here. Dorothy Bronowit died in 1969, Margaret Douglas in 1967. Hmm. Oh, they didn't on the other end, O'Connell found him found himself faced with a strong and militant union chapter. The teacher leadership of Lane was bent on preserving the school as an institution of learning and unwilling to surrender to the school board's hypocrisy on the question of integration or safety in the schools. Starting with George Altamore came starting when George Altamare came to Lane in 1956. The school had developed an active union orientation. There had been a long history of chapter initiative, and in 1965, the chapter chairman, Carl Golden, directed the research of a comprehensive study showing the trend towards reverse segregation at Lane High School. So the union, he's describing the union as, as kind of militant, which is interesting because you could you could posit that this was a meeting of two militant groups where one <laughs> members of one militant group are actually in that union that considers itself militant and has completely different interests. <laughs> oh man. All right. Ma many such cases. <laughs> many such cases. The study, a slap at the board's zoning policy, revealed that Lane had been singled out by the school board as a means of sidestepping the integration issue. See Chapter 4. Golden had gotten the ball rolling, and in 1966, George Hamonidas, Hemon the, the new UFT chairman, took up the fight. Hamonidas, a social studies teacher and a candidate for a doctoral degree from Columbia University, <clears throat> had leadership qualities that won him the respect of the entire staff. Greek, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm just looking at Columbia University. Yeah. Um, with, the, with the rare exception, most people who come out of Columbia University or come out complete communists, and I can tell you that because people in my family went to Columbia. So, <laughs> um, And dad with a scholarly intellect, articulate, highly personable, and a clever strategist to boot, he rallied the faculty in 1966 and 1967 to give teachers hope and a sense of purpose. His outstanding leadership served as a shot in the arm to a disgruntled and demoralized staff. Ah, I mean, it's it's starting to get a little rosy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, where where am I? Where am I? Okay, there we go. Uh, ba ba ba. There was there was little that the UFT chapter could do about the broken promises of 1965 and the unkept pledges of zoning superintendent Jacob Landers to correct a gerrymander that had all but a that had all but a tiny section of Queens Woodhaven. Out, out of Lane District and added on more and more of the Bedford-Stuyvesant ghetto. But zoning, yes, up. No, it's just it's it's just insane how fucked they got. I mean, this is. <laughs> but zoning was only one of several issues important to the new chapter chairman. For Hamonidas, decidedly liberal, <laughs> a changing student body did not have to mean anarchy and chaos. And he was he was <laughs> and he was a constant thorn in O'Connell's side as he forced the administration to maintain standards of discipline consistent with the universal concepts of law and justice. <laughs> <laughs> 
what are those? Yeah. You're aiming a gun to my head, but, uh, you know, it's, we have, we have to maintain the nap. (laughs) (laughs) During the 1962 to 66 period, the rate of daily student attendance dropped in direct proportion to the percentage rise of non-white enrollment. Why did people hate this book so much? Why do people on the left really hate this book so much? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination. Well, I mean, the actual leftists should fucking love this book. They should use it as a, as a guideline. I mean, capture, capture the administration, capture the, the policymakers, capture the union, (laughs) capture the students. I mean, then, then all you have to deal with is really just the teachers. This book is all about just the teachers versus everybody else. It's amazing that you know you you go through a book like State and Revolution, and you read Lenin, and you read you read Stalin, and people like the people on the right just don't understand how to do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's mean, like, <laughs> and granted, I mean, l- like we mentioned before, if this were to be written from the perspective of a, of a black militant. They probably got lucky. Um, they were they were pretty much given on a silver platter all of the conditions that they that they needed. Um, that's 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 pretty much this entire book is here are all of the conditions you need to have a complete like ra- literal race war revolution, whatever you want to call it, and um, just completely undermine <laughs> undermine. Uh, how was that? Uh, how was that guy described? Uh, law and order, and you know, traditional, traditional yeah. discipline norms, and all that. Yeah, White yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> the union chapter was first to call attention to this monumental truancy problem. Complicating the growing absentee rate was the growth of students cutting, of student cutting, which the school found itself unable to control. And after a while, they fucking wish they were. I think you disconnected your mic. I said, and after a while, I bet they wish they were truant. (laughs) Yeah. Please skip school. Well, yeah, I mean, because pretty soon you're going to have literal cutting. So there was little or no follow up on offenders. And the existing feeling among the students was that they could cut with impunity. Lateness was still another serious problem, which increased as more black students came in by train from the outlying black communities. It wasn't at all unusual for hundreds of students to queue up day after day to get a late admission pass hours after the start of the school day. Lastly, and most serious was the matter of asocial behavior, an emanation in part of black frustration and of black resentment toward the white community for making them feel uncomfortable in that neighborhood. Is he serious? Yeah, I mean, I guess from the perspective of the black students, uh, they probably they, they probably don't think don't think two steps ahead and say like it's not actually this these people. Like, yeah, I'm sure they were uncomfortable, but uh, you know, you're pointing the finger at the wrong people. But uh, now, regardless. Regardless of whether they are right or wrong, like you can you can see the uh, the first steps towards like the the cauldron bubbling. Well, that experiment has come to an end. I had to discontinue the auto insert ads because some of the ads they were putting in there just made me ill thinking about them being associated with my name. So I apologize about that. But if you want to support the show and you enjoy the work I'm doing and you're getting benefit from it, you can go to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash support see all the ways that you can support the show the best way is to do it through my website but also i have included a p.o box where you can send me a check fiat a book a thank you note anything you want i just really appreciate all of you and um thank you for your patience while ads were being inserted for the jab and boosters and one person told me some drag show Furthermore, the black students were angry about having to cope with subjects requiring the fundamental skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic with which they had never been provided in the earlier grades. Sucks for them, too. (laughs) 
<laughs> and as a consequence, blacks experience a sense of inferiority through having to compete with better trained white students in academic classes or being placed in the non-academic course of study for slow learners unable to do college preparatory work. <laughs> this reminds me of when I was in boot camp. <laughs> there was uh <laughs> Good. we had um oh am I on? Yeah. We had uh we had not I wouldn't call them like alt ed classes, but they were like there there were certain groups that had to like go away for an hour a day to practice like reading and writing and like all these things. Swimming. O'Connell's inability to deal with the school's mounting problems brought his policies under fire in the fall of nineteen sixty six when a UFT council state statement zeroed in on the growing menace a chapter resolution began a dangerous and explosive environment has existed at lane high school since the opening of school in september there have been numerous cases of students being set upon threatened and or beaten both on school grounds and in the immediate vicinity thereof the situation has deteriorated to the point where a teacher responsible for maintaining order in the student cafeteria was attacked kicked in the stomach and sustained sustained several injuries requiring hospital treatment. Many of these outbreaks have had racial overtones and have not been confined to boys alone. And this was a full two and one half years prior to the collapse of, to the collapse of January, 1969. Yeah. This is just the, the little opening salvos. Yep. It's what we're seeing now with, all right, well, or it's what we saw in, 2022 in 2020 sorry the racial crisis was out in the open by 1966 the society at large had not yet begun the great debate about racism in the northern schools and the attempt yeah but we don't hear about that at all nowadays the <laughs> fact that there was ra- there was racism in the north oh my in god the, in the ni- in the late 1960s <laughs> am i reading this right they literally just got rid of uh uh the, the old owner of the Red Sox, Yawkey, he was like a huge segregationist. They just renamed his street to like, I don't know, some some black lady. But it was no longer Yawkey Way. Twenty. That was uh like what a uh, year or two ago. Yeah. I mean, the Red Sox were the last team to desegregate. To have a black player. They were the last yep. team to have a black player. Yep. I knew that. I knew that. Um, man. All right. The racial crisis was out in the open by 1966. Society at large had not yet begun the great debate about racism in the northern schools, and the and the attention of the civil rights movement was still, for the most part, confined to the South. Lane was in every sense both a forerunner and a prototype as early as 1965. Integration, poorly planned and recklessly implemented, had taken its toll on what had been a fine public school a few years earlier. All the danger signals were there in 1965, but the human element was never a primary concern of the school bureaucrats who dealt with charts and statistics and for whom a student was merely a number. Youngsters who disliked and distrusted each other were thrown together with absolutely no understanding of the other's needs or lifestyle. Paul Gottfried write a book about, never mind. Um, Mutual hostility grew as impoverished blacks and sub and subsistence whites scratched and clawed at each other. The whites struggling to hold on to the little piece they had carved out for themselves and the blacks pitted against them for a share of the action. But how does he go from just being completely like, you know, bordering on stuff that, you know, Gottfried would talk about to like running interference here? Yeah. Is it because, yeah, I mean, is it because Saltzman? No, nah, I, I, you know, e- even I got like little glimpses of empathy sometimes. Like at, at the end of the day, like you did take two very disparate groups and just chucked them in together in the same fucking, you know, hornet's nest and shook it. <laughs> but, and <laughs> yeah, they just sat back and waited. Oh. <laughs> uh. All right, so but Lane High School sat way back in the distant crotch of nowhere on the border where two counties intersect, and the attitude of the school board was, "We don't care what kind of problems you're having between the blacks and whites. Just get, 
Just keep things quiet out there. By October 1966, after repeated incidents of racial violence against teachers and students, the UFT Chapter Council unanimously passed a resolution seeking to pressure school authorities. Quote, should the emergency situation continue with, without abatement, the resolution concluded, and all other means of restoring a healthy educational environment fail, we could not in good conscience fail to support those teachers who, for reasons of personal safety, would choose not to honor such assignments to cafeteria and hall patrol, where most of the violent acts took place. So this is kind of the prelude to their threats of uh, going on strike, you know, which you read in, in the last in the last episode, like they're being very measured and reasonable, considering, you know, they're being attacked and beaten up. Yeah, it's oh man. like, OK, we're no longer going to be hall monitors if this continues like. You know, you you really have to. I, I can't even see myself like spending a day past like one attack or yeah. even experience even hearing another teacher be like you know oh you know i was i was attacked it's like right, i'm out of here yeah i'm out yep. I'll, go, I'll go find something else to do or like if you're one a, if you're one a, is an anomaly two is concerning and then after three it's like all right something's going on here like i that that's the other thing about this this whole thing too is why do these teach like why didn't they get new jobs or like fucking, I don't know. Like I would move if my life was in danger at work, I would at the very least just not fucking go to work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, look at it. All right. All right. While O'Connell, <clears throat> excuse me. While O'Connell was taken to task by the union chapter, the UFT leaders also offered him the opportunity to join with them in a campaign directed at the school board's policies. It was a campaign to secure the assignment of additional non-professional security personnel. For almost six months, extending into the spring of 1967, there was an ongoing exchange of letters between Jimenez requesting more security services and assistant print, uh, superintendent Maurice Hopkins, former head of the high school office. I need to take a drink. A typical Hopkins response to an urgent plea for assistance was, the number of school aides available for assignment to the high schools is limited by the budget. And obviously this emergency cannot be expected to continue indefinitely. <laughs> That's... Uh... Oh, contraire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's like a the, the typical response I would expect you to get from a, an assistant superintendent. Like, yeah, we'll help you out a little bit, but you know, there's the budget and this can't go on forever. Like, you know, don't don't plan on having don't don't get dependent on it. Yeah. O'Connell was caught in the middle. He knew that the union was fighting his battle, but to support the chapter leaders meant embarrassing his superiors. And that, of course, was contrary to the cardinal rule. The chapter carried the same message to District Superintendent Douglas. Still no relief. O'Connell himself finally wrote to Hopkins, telling him he needed more security personnel to protect the health and safety of staff and students. In reporting one particular melee in the cafeteria, he told Hopkins, an outbreak of violence in our cafeteria during the third period yesterday resulted in serious injury to one of our school aides. Specifically, Mr. Herman Goodman was struck on the head with a chair. The resulting Jesus. wound required 15 stitches. Chair is shot. WWF. I mean, like <laughs> early. Uh. The Goodman assault was only one of many against the staff during the 1966-67 school year. The contagion spread. In addition to assaults against students, aides, and teachers, there was an endless stream of reports about vile and abusive language and of overt criminal activity in the school. How could anyone not see, in 1966, the path on which the school was embarked as its non-white population climbed to 54.8%? There could be no quality education for any students in this climate of fear and tension. Man, if 13 does 60 now, I wonder what 54.8 does. <laughs> um, I've heard... 
in the sixties, it was something like eleven seventy. Oh yeah, yeah. The, so. the late sixties, early seventies, just in general, were seemed like such a fucking insane time. Like the most domestic bombings in in history. Like just a fucking insane time. I'm glad I didn't live during them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, blah, blah, blah. George Al- George Altamare had given up his union vice presidency in 1964 to take a full-time job as a UFT organizer, but he returned to his teaching post at Lane in 1967 to qualify as a bona fide candidate so he could recapture his old title in the next union election. The matter of the disruptive child was already shaping up as a key issue, a strike issue as the contract talks proceeded in the spring of 1967. When him decided to lead the Lane chapter into a confrontation with school authorities on the issue of student violence, Altomare was there, and he was instrumental in drawing up the list of demands that were presented to Douglas. The Lane chapter, through its local action, helped solidify the union's disruptive child stance, which placed the burden of blame on the school board for having failed to provide special facilities for emotionally disturbed youngsters. Yeah, alt ed classes. Like that's that's really what they were talking about. I don't know if they had them back. I'm sure they had something like them back then. But uh, yeah, yeah, it seemed like they just needed to turn fifty four point eight percent of their square footage into uh, alt ed class. <laughs> Jeez. Lane was not the only school where teachers were being assaulted in 1967, and in a general statement to the public during its negotiations for a new contract, the union declared. Quote, whenever there are threats against teachers, effective police protection must be provided. How about whenever there are threats against teachers, you exterminate the threat? Yeah. Well, maybe that's what they were getting at. Because <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with the co- putting cops in there. Ugh. <laughs> Many of the present problems stem from past failures of the Board of Education. UFT is initiating a positive program of cooperation with parents and community groups through the establishment of teacher-parent community councils in each school. Let us work toward programs to improve educational performance, not create situations which will ensure an exodus of qualified people from the school districts. It's interesting that their goals are still couched in improving educational performance when it seems like they should just be focused on like stabilizing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, th- th- there's a threat that needs to be eliminated. Yeah. Yeah. Like eliminate I mean, the threat, stabilize the environment. And then you can focus on like, you know, helping your A students and like, you know, fostering, fostering an environment of education. Like, I don't know. So maybe even like from from all from all the reading, it seems like the union is actually the least retarded party. But yeah. uh, it, but granted, this is uh, what what is when does this take place? Nineteen sixty seven. So a yeah, couple of years before yeah, it really pops that, off. We're in that range, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Uh, onward. The union's disruptive child program was its army <laughs> disruptive child program. There's like. Violent crime and drug addiction. Yeah. Those those are disruptive children. Yeah. It's um Yeah, to say that they just need to be like sequestered in in like an alt ed class is very generous. But again, this is the we're we're still in kind of the uh like the, the beginning of it. And they still have that mindset of probably a couple of years before where you know, this is really bad. This is unprecedented, but they're still not ready to kind of rethink the entire, you know, they're, they're still operating within the boundaries of, you know, where they were two, two years prior. This is also the post Nuremberg regime and the new dealers regime. So, um, ding, um, the union's disruptive child program was its Armageddon during the 14 day strike of, of September, 1967 anti-union forces told the black community that white UFT teachers didn't want to teach their children and that the union was looking for a way to throw black children out of school and into the streets. I mean, this is Genius. literally, 
yeah, this is literally, look, we know our kids are fucked up and we're, we need to send them to you every day. Yeah. Cause we don't want them here. <laughs> yeah. The union is threatening to make you take care of your kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Let's right. get those bastards. <laughs> There, there was little the UFT could do to combat that kind of misrepresentation, and the union's negotiators were forced to back off. Don't you, I mean, this is exact. <laughs> this is how long ago? This I is mean, yesterday. This is yesterday, this, right? Right around the time Alinsky was fucking <laughs> at the end of fight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the end, they were made to swallow as a face saver the mere inclusion in the contract of a school board administrative circular setting forth an overly complicated procedure for removing disruptive children, which was understood by very few and almost impossible to administer. For, <laughs> for all practical purposes, the disruptive child issue was buried in 1967, and with it would die schools all over New York. Huh. Oh, here we go. Morton Celeb replaced James J. O'Connell as Lane's principal in nineteen in September nineteen sixty-seven, and Hyman Bursky <coughs> and, and Jim Lewis were elected as the new co-chairman of the UFT chapter, replacing Himenitis, and who had become disgusted with the board's continued neglect of the school. The nineteen sixty-seven sixty-eight school year followed a similar pattern. Bursky and Lewis, the latter being the first black union chairman in the school, carried forth the quest for more security personnel and worked hard to make the newly created faculty discipline committee a viable unit that would function in the best interests of students as well as teachers. Hmm. The purpose of the five-member committee, recognized as a de jure school body by the administration was to refer special problems of student behavior directly to the district superintendent and make sure that teacher concerns were adequately represented at suspense hearings. So they had to have a hearing to suspend. Now, by suspense, do you think they mean expulsion? I'm or thinking, like so when, when I got suspended from school, it was for like three days or a week or something like that. Yeah, was, yeah. Like ours like was like a two-week suspension, which means like, you you fought somebody and like you might have actually hurt them or like you assaulted a teacher or something. Mm -hmm. uh, it would either be like a two week suspension or or you know we've had a couple expulsions too, yep. but for like you know bringing a knife into school or something would get you expelled. That would that would get you on the honor roll at Franklin K line. Yeah, yeah, that was a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> you should probably bring a knife to school. <laughs> But in but in 1968, Hopkins was still playing the go the game of holding back on sufficient security allocations until a crisis arose. The new chairman wrote to remind him that Lane is one of the largest school buildings over a quarter mile around on each on each of five floors and with numerous entrances. Yeah, I mean that is that is a big. I mean, well, you know, as a matter of fact, that is not a big school. I'm thinking of like think about a quarter mile track that you know uh somewhere and is that the actual building or is that like the school grounds? I'm thinking it's the building, just the building itself. Ah. So that's not very big. My my middle school was would have probably been a, <laughs> more than that around. Was it like a was it like designed as a campus? Um it was it was designed as a prison. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah i guess they do have to be pretty big i'm thinking in terms of like uh <laughs> you know it's it's potential for like taking control of any situation when your school is i mean at least in my mind large with multiple entrance <laughs> entrances and exits um and then filled with people that don't want to fucking be there and later people that actively want to hurt other people uh yeah yeah all right uh blah, blah, blah. spence here that's a quarter mile around. okay it was also noted by the chairman that lane was one of the most difficult schools as evidenced by the record number of assaults against teachers and students 
Assaults continue to occur here at Lane, they concluded, despite the efforts of the Guidance Committee to improve teacher-student relations and to eliminate some of the sources of tension. Well, I wonder what they mean by that. What does eliminate some of the sources of tension mean? I don't know. Okay. Nearly 80 new teachers representing about 30% of the faculty, most on their very first professional assignment, were employed at Lane in 1967 to keep up with the skyrocketing student register and to replace those who, like James J. O'Connell, had become fed up with the turmoil of recent years and left the school. With a student enrollment of almost 5,400 in a building constructed for 3,800, each lunch period saw 1,000 students packed into the basement cafeteria. That sucks. Like I mean, that, that right off the bat, even, even in a regular school, like that would suck. Yeah. Uh, the close contact only exacerbated existing tensions between the races. With these tensions mounting, there was no comparable increase in the security force, nor were any special programs introduced to bridge the gap between neighborhood youngsters and those transported in from the ghetto. No one was quite sure that what was coming next. By March 1968, there were sustained outbreaks that stopped just short of mushrooming into full-scale race riots. Fights, thefts, and vandalism were becoming commonplace. Many teachers, convinced that neither the principal nor the school board would back them up, chose to shun their responsibility of providing the school security if it meant jeopardizing their own safety. The very last thing a teacher wanted was a confrontation with a student, one that might result in violence. Even Celeb had told them not to stand in a student's path if the student refused to stop at the teacher's command. Yeah, that's uh, that's the equivalent of the stand down order from the mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Just let them do what they want. Teachers, teachers too had become increasingly aware of the dangers to themselves and had learned to look the other way. One female teacher angered over an incident in which she felt teachers were shirking their duty, wrote a letter to Celeb saying recently I had occasion to help control a large group of students in, in the auditorium while a fight was broken up. This brawl had, in my opinion, riot potential. I found myself in this role because other teachers, some of them male teachers, refused to get involved and passed by. While it is true school teachers are not peace officers and are not expected to place themselves in a position of possibly incurring personal injury, there are ways of assuring proper supervision within their control. The apathy displayed by some of our teachers who have voiced great concern in the interest and welfare of children is appalling. Perhaps we will go along, doing nothing constructive, preferring the path of least resistance. That path, however, leads away from scholarship and decency in our school, away from good citizenship and responsibility in our society, and toward decay and destruction of both education and humanity. So true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's... All right. On on the one hand, it's... (sighs) Those those male teachers should probably be punched in the face. Um, <laughs> and on the other hand, I, I kind of don't blame them because I don't know. I just if if your heart's not in it and you know that this shit's going to if that this there's no chance that you're ever going to put out this fire. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, just get the hell out of there. Yeah. In 1968, it was apparent to everybody within earshot of Lane that no constructive educational program was being conducted at the school. Indeed, once what had once been considered the exception, the emergency occurrence, had now become the norm. Lane was a public school seething with frustration and discontent. Racial conflict was spurred on by a group by a growing narcotics problem, which school and city officials chose to ignore a problem which by 1970 had completely overwhelmed educational and law enforcement officials. Finally, the new principal, Morton Celeb, had never managed to win the trust and confidence of his staff, and they blamed him for the crises. Experienced teachers left in droves during the 1967-68 period. Even the UFT diehards, defeated in their efforts to reverse the demise, got out. Himonitis to a suburban school system, Bursky on a transfer to a top top academic school in Northwest Queens, Altamare back to the union with a full-time vice presidency. 
teachers weren't the only ones to flee. Anyone who could find a place to go went. Yeah, why flight? <laughs> Joining teachers in the flight from Lane were the white parents who began finding ways of avoiding the enrollment of their children there. By giving the false address of a relative or friend, many were able to get their youngsters registered in nearby John Adams or Richmond Hill high schools. The white flight reached irreversible proportions, it seemed, just four years after the school board had issued, issued an integration plan in 1963, stating its goals, quoting, in the years since the historic 1954 decision of the United States Supreme Court and even earlier, the New York City public schools have pursued earnestly their commitment to the, object, to the objective of racial integration in the schools. Much has been accomplished. Nevertheless, our midsummer 1963 stockmaking makes it clear that much more has to be done. Our, pa our past programs and activities were appropriate for their time, but we now propose to embark on a new series of endeavors which we may which we hope will hasten the day when our city will com is completely integrated and all our children will enjoy equal educational opportunity. <laughs> uh, just the, <laughs> the uh, hypocrisy of liberalism is insane. <laughs> we, <laughs> those people, you could probably ask them like, do you want better education or worse education? They would probably prioritize better education. But the thing that trumps that priority every single time is aesthetics. Yep. We believe that school integration is an important part of our pursuit to excellence for all children. The noble dream of 1963 had turned into a nightmare by 1968 and mass hysteria by 1969. Nobody could say that the lane breakdown came about unexpectedly, that there wasn't time for correction and stabilization, or that it all happened too fast. There was time, plenty of it, and all the signs and warnings had been there since Carl Golden wrote in 19, his 1965 analysis, see Chapter 4, predicting the events that took place in the fall of 1969. But the bureaucrats at 110 Livingston Street weren't listening, and everyone was either too busy or too preoccupied or just didn't give a damn. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court decision was 1954. This is all taking place in the mid-60s. I mean, everything could have been avoided, and you maybe could have still had somewhat of a functional education system if they just kind of spread it out a little bit instead of, uh, you know, going from, what was it? 24 point something percent in 1966 yeah. to 54.8% in 1968. Like just taking this school as a microcosm of society when meaning <laughs> all the other schools. Um, it seems like <laughs> it just <laughs> shifted into fifth gear immediately and uh, with predictable, well, I guess not predictable, but uh, I think anybody could have told them that going down that route would have resulted in some type of catastrophe. I, I, I just, once you see it building, how do you not do everything you can to stop it? And that's just liberalism. That yeah. is the believing that, well, I mean, society's getting better. People are getting better. We just yeah. let this ride out. It'll fix itself. Yeah. And true to form, the conservative approach would have still yielded similar results, just spread out over time. But, uh, you know, it would have it slowed, slowed down the inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't have forced everything together in such a short period of time. Um, I mean, just look at, look at the backlash you get now to, that's happening now to all this transgenderism. I mean, they've tried to squeeze this in, in, in what really four years time, yeah. just push pushing it. I mean, of course we've heard about it, but I mean, to push it as legitimate as, you know, it, to add it to uh, Paul Godfrey's therapeutic state that if you don't accept these people, there is something wrong with, with you. It's yeah. not the 40% that are committing suicide. You know, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, uh, that whole trope that this is just the inevitable tide of history. Don't bother trying to fight it. You know, you don't you want to be on the right side of history? 
and um like that's just some given <laughs> yeah all right in 1968 an official united states government report told the nation that we are moving towards two societies one predominantly white and located in the suburbs and one largely negro located in the central cities franklin k lane high school had become living evidence of the polarization and that is the end of chapter two jesus i mean it's weird mean? how they well i guess it's not weird but that was mostly just a backdrop of all the just insane shit that happened in the first two or uh, first chapter yeah and you you see the culmination but you didn't yeah, and you think, oh, this is the worst of it. And then you go back. It, now you see the backstory, and it's like, man, this was it, obvious. It's so obvious that this was going to happen. Yeah, if if you look at his description of all of of the leadership between the the superintendent's office and uh, the the union leadership, which I don't know, I guess border was borderline decent, and then the teachers, uh, you know. It was almost inevitable, all all within the backdrop of the most socially calamitous time in probably our country's history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, <laughs> read the room. You know, it's like I mean, talk about talk about a term that needs to be brought up over and over again. Read. It was like they um, the, you saw that quote unquote libertarian candidate for Arizona Senate just bringing up age of consent. <laughs> it's like first of all <laughs> I mean, libertarians are like the the jews of the right they just can't help themselves they can't <laughs> help themselves <laughs> oh, you God. had to do it didn't you <laughs> oh so uh, everybody's saying thank you uh, everyone in the uh, everyone in the chat who's saying thank you and good stuff and everything thank you i really appreciate it and um, Aaron, do you have anything to plug before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Timeline Earth live every Wednesday. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BTWA underscore returns. And uh, yeah, I think I, I, I didn't drop any ends this episode, so you got no. lucky. Yeah, I got lucky. And um, <laughs> if anybody wants to hit up Aaron in DMs, you know exactly the yep. word that will get his attention. Yep. Say the Thanks. password and I'm there for anything. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody. Bye.